We're in a series where we're studying the life of Jesus Christ to look at how he lived life so that we can align our lives to him. And we're doing so through the book of Luke. So if you could turn to Luke chapter 9. If you do not have a Bible with you, our ushers would be glad to provide you one. And we're on page 970 in that Bible uh, that is being handed out. So today's text is dealing with something that I think many of us who have read the Gospels are aware of. We're aware that the disciples, while they were certainly a great crew, uh, they had their issues, and one of their more common issues was pride, and that pride was on great display whenever they would argue with each other as to which of them were the greatest. There's something just human about that, that we want to compare ourselves to other people, or when we see somebody we think is great, we want to compare them to everybody else. And so then we come up with this term called the goat. Who's the goat? The greatest of all time. That subject has come up a lot recently, and uh, especially in regards to the NFL, because people want to argue now that, yes, I'm going to say the name, Tom Brady got his sixth uh, Super Bowl ring. Uh, the, 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 the discussion is, is yeah, all right. All right, we'll have a prayer service right now for those people. They need Jesus. But, uh, you know, up until recently, most of the time people would say the greatest quarterback of all time, it's arguable, but would be Joe Montana, who you see up on the screen. Uh, but at this point, it's hard to argue against somebody that has six Super Bowl rings. Another person, that, another argument this past week, ESPN did a two-hour special answering this question or seeking to answer this question, who is the GOAT of the NBA, the greatest of all time? And they put, you know, they were comparing these two. And uh, now, for any of us that have lived long enough, we're like, that's not even a discussion. I mean, for the, I mean, I got tired of watching the NBA because Michael Jordan won it every year. The guy was incredible. And so, I, to me, that's an easy one. The greatest of all time is, at least at this point, is Michael Jordan in the NBA. Or if you consider uh, in boxing, the person that would self-proclaim he was the greatest of all time was Muhammad Ali. I mean, if you, okay, this generation over here, you don't know about Muhammad Ali other than maybe just brief snippets, but Google his interviews with Howard Cosell. <laughs> it, is one of the, it is some of the best interviews that you'll get having the energy levels of, of Muhammad Ali and the, just the accent of and the way he would posture words, uh, Howard Cosell was just a fantastic exchange. But Ali would say, you know, he was the greatest of all time. And early in his career when he said that, everybody was arguing, but Rocky Marciano, that's the other guy. And you're like, who is that guy? Rocky Marciano was considered like one of the greatest, if not the greatest of all time before Ali was around. If you consider who is the greatest president of all time, I had to go safe on this one. <laughs> I, I chose nobody from the last 100 years, just in case you're related to them or that you have donated funds to them or whatever, and we're not going to split by parties uh, at this moment, but, uh, but let's think about this. When you consider the difficulty of presidency in our history, was it more difficult to create something out of nothing, being the first president 
of this country. In other words, being a part of the birthing of an idea that literally becomes law and becomes a people group. I mean, that navigating that with all the low points and the precarious points that might be in that journey, that to me takes in a tremendous amount of leadership, which gives me a, a lot of respect towards George Washington, and he certainly should be in the argument. But you could also say that the greatest of all time was Abraham Lincoln, who at the time when the nation was on, uh, about to dissolve, it's, a, it's about to split apart, and for two and three years, it looked like that was going to be our story. And yet he stayed the course, and, and what do we have now is a United States of America. So it's a fair argument to consider who would be the greatest between those two presidents. If you were to consider who would be the, the best preacher of all time in the last 100 years, I thought about putting uh, Billy Graham up there and my face. <laughs> but I, but my, the person doing PowerPoint refused to do that, and I can appreciate that. But really, and literally speaking, in my opinion, the greatest preacher of our lifetime has been Billy Graham. And, and to have lived a life the way he lived it and, and living above uh, approach. And, and so he lived and died well and with honor and honored the name Jesus. But I would throw up possibly in this discussion as far as preachers go, a man that spoke and preached during the time of the Great Awakening, and his name was George Whitfield. If you study the history of the Great Awakening that happened uh, throughout Europe and, on, and into the United States, you'll find that George Whitfield was one of the most powerful preachers. In fact, a miracle happened one time when he was speaking in the city of London, and his voice could be heard throughout the entire city. The gospel was heard in one moment through one message without a microphone in the city of London. A miracle of God truly happened. And there are many stories written about him and how many people came to Christ under his leadership. When we consider even why we would list the people we've thrown up there as the goats, the greatest of all time in that avenue, there, there are certain qualifications you begin to think of. So what truly makes a person great? What truly makes a person great or greater than another? This question has been going on for a long time, and we have record that it's gone on for thousands of years, just even from the Bible's uh, recollection and, and calling back from the Old Testament to New Testament. People struggled with their names being considered great. Jesus' disciples, his 12, were no different. Keep in mind that they were 12 among several hundred. In fact, Jesus, when we looked a couple weeks ago, we were looking at how when Jesus chose 12 from, with, from without of this group of about 500 or 72, we know that, that he then appointed them to become apostles. So they went from being disciples, followers, to being apostles, which are sent ones. And so they now have an office uh, that's important or it's elevated from within this group of followers that Jesus had followed them everywhere. And this group of 12 were significant. I mean, they were, they were being given many responsibilities that the rest of the followers of Jesus did not receive. And so let's look at this text. Let's see how they struggled with many of the successes and their failures. And, as a, and in that journey, then discovered what true greatness is about. So we're going to begin in verse 37 of chapter 9. 
Again, we're looking at how Jesus handled life, looking at how he lived it, how he spoke it, so that we can then emulate it and live it out in our own lives. So context is this. The next day, when they came down from, a, from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Let me stop there for a moment. So the context is, is that you have this man who has one child. And, and in their culture, your firstborn son is the heir. They're the ones that will handle all the inheritance. They will oversee everything. It's by which the name will be carried on. And the seal and symbol of that family line goes with that child. It's not common that there would only be a single child in the home. Their homes often were larger and having many children. And so to have only had one and this one not living up to the hopes and dreams of this father because a demon has possessed him. Now, some of you might think it's pretty incredible the idea that a child or likely somebody that is a young teenager at this point has been, for, since he was young, been convulsing or going into these episodes that were clearly demonic. Some of you might not even believe that's possible. But yet I can tell you from having led some many mission trips overseas, I have seen such moments happen. In fact, even one of our most recent youth teams experienced a moment where clearly demonic activity was happening in the life of a child. But I'll draw attention to a single moment that happened with a team I, I took to uh, South Africa in 2010. Our team was about ready to walk into a public school in Johannesburg. And as they were walking into the school, this teenage girl all of a sudden fell to the ground and began convulsing. And out of her came several voices that were male. Imagine if you, as a Westerner, all of a sudden experience something like this. You see, in South Africa, not uncommon. These things happen overtly. In a culture where, where uh, fear is the primary way by which you lead, Satan knows to be overt is the way to have power in that culture. In Western culture, we don't like fear. In fact, we're fear-averse. We avoid things. We actually fear fear itself. And so Satan knows his, ultra, his, his ultimate hand is to actually be covert in our culture. So we don't see often these things here, but yet demonic activity does happen in our country. But this group, as they're coming into the school, this girl is thrown to the ground and male voices are coming out of her. And people just simply split apart and gave her space as this is happening. Meanwhile, our team is looking upon it and they're in shock. They've never seen anything like it. It leads them to prayer. And then they discover later that this child, this girl that was a teenager, was a daughter of a Sangoma. A Sangoma is a witch doctor. And over the weekend, they had performed all kinds of ritual rites to prepare her for taking over as the lead Sangoma for her village. 
So all these rituals that were done to her, likely things that I do not want to even mention up here on stage, have been done to her. And the result was playing out before our eyes. But if this was normal, we're not, not necessarily normal, not necessarily happening every day, but something that was common enough that you would know what it is when you saw it. That's what's going on here. People in this culture knew that when they saw things like this, they knew how to interpret it, that there is a demon involved with the situation. In many cases, the father would be judged for that child being in that situation. Perhaps the family is worshiping the devil. Maybe they have done something to anger God and God gave them over to the devil. Nonetheless, this father was desperate and was willing to identify himself in the midst of a crowd that he was in need. But what you need to see in this highlighting was that in this moment, he does two things. He's desperate and reaches out to Jesus, and he calls out the disciples for their failure. Now, what you need to know is that at the beginning of Luke chapter 9, the disciples, the apostles, the sent ones, were assigned and commissioned to have the power to cast out demons. If you read Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, you'll see that Jesus says, I give you power and authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. So you have this, this commissioning that happens at the beginning of the chapter, and then clearly after this point in time, if you read the accounts in Matthew and Mark about this, that the disciples were effectively casting out demons and healing the sick, except for this occasion. You'll find this occasion being discussed. It's the same event in Matthew 17 and Mark chapter 9. But in this moment, you have these disciples. They've, they're doing what they've already been successful at. In the name of Jesus, come out. But in this case, with this child, this teenager, in the name of Jesus, come out. And the demon did not. And the demon did not. And they might have tried repeatedly, and the demon remained. Now, what you're going to see in this situation is that in these different accounts, we get the fuller picture of all that happened. But I want you to understand, before we continue reading, your failure has just been announced. So as a human being here in this room, you've been commissioned to do something pretty powerful, you something you're excited about. There's a lot of pride wrapped into it. But now your failure has been announced. So hold that here to know what the disciples are feeling in this moment. Let's continue reading. Verse 41. Jesus responds to this, this father saying, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Now, a question, who's Jesus talking to? When he says, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Now, keep in mind, verse 40, the final statement was, the father's pointing to the disciples saying, they weren't successful. They failed. They tried. It didn't work. And then Jesus says, you unbelieving and perverse generation. Now, it's possible he is speaking to the disciples that their unbelief and their perverse minds and their, and their motives, maybe that's part of the issue. Or it could be that in this moment, he's confronting the crowd for having believed temporarily and then automatically becoming cynical. 
they saw, ah, now you can't cast out a demon. You've been, we've been building you up. We've been praising you for having this power. And now you can't do it. So maybe Jesus is addressing all of them in some facet or form. But anyway, nonetheless, he calls the boy to come. And even, verse 42, even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit. He rebuked him. And then healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at what? The greatness of God. So, Jesus is given an opportunity to speak into a moment that his disciples had already failed at. Disciples could not cast out this demon. Jesus then, by mere rebuke, is successful. He doesn't do anything else. It doesn't say or describe that he took time to pray. It doesn't say that he uh, spent time investigating the situation. No, it just simply happens that the child goes into a convulsion in that moment, and Jesus rebukes the spirit. Done. Gone. Success. The people's jaws drop. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And they're amazed at what? The greatness of God. Which says what? That Jesus, they're seeing, only God could do what just happened before our eyes. So there's an, an understanding that Jesus is the manifestation of God right before their eyes, and they're amazed by this greatness, that there was a success just by the mere rebuke of the Spirit. Again, that's amazement. The crowd's amazed. The disciples are amazed. But the disciples are also like, why couldn't we do that? Well, why wasn't that able to work for us? And that's all going on underneath the surface. Let's continue reading in the last part of verse 43. So they were, again, amazed at the greatness of God. And while everyone was marveling at that which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. So he's wanting them to lean in. Listen carefully. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That seems really random to be put right here, doesn't it? The, the greatness of God, the amazement of God uh, that, that people have in this moment. Jesus is being seen as being God, so his greatness is being lifted up. And then Jesus tells his disciples, lean in and tells them, I'm going to submit myself to men. I'm going to die. In other words, what would seemingly be, I'm going to fail. He's not failing, but that's how it would be received. So all this greatness and all this power that was just displayed, and he's saying, I'm going to surrender myself to men. Disciples are struggling because they're feeling insecure by their failure. They've just been called out. They're also struggling with envy because they wish they could have done what Jesus did. And then Jesus just said something. It's like, what? Why? What? what did he just say? Look what they, how they respond to this. Verse 45. But they did not understand what he meant. It was hidden from them so that they could not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask about it. 
Okay. So he just said something that was like, what? And then they couldn't even ask to what it meant. Because keep in mind, what is going on in this moment is that people are marveling. Look at the end of verse 43. While everyone was marveling, so it's still going on, marveling at this moment. Jesus has a sidebar. And the disciples are marveling. They're, they're being amazed by this moment. And then Jesus says something and their minds aren't quite engaged. You ever talk, try to talk to somebody when they're being marveled by something? They're marveling something uh, away from you and you're trying to talk to them. And you're like, are you hearing anything I'm saying? So that's going on, and, and their eyes are caught in this moment, and they're also feeling insecure. And so this marveling and the insecurity is causing them to not hear. And I would say it wasn't meant for them to understand in this moment, but I don't think they could have if they had tried. And they failed, and it highlights. Luke says they didn't even ask. But they were willing to ask a particular question. But it had nothing to do with Jesus and his greatness. Why were, how were you able to do that? It wasn't anything about like, well, with all your greatness, why would you surrender yourself to men? They didn't ask that either. But what they did ask is coming up next. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Oh, really? I mean, seriously. The context of this statement, most of the time when we hear, we remember, if you know the Bible at all, when we think about the disciples arguing about which of them is the greatest, most of the time, none of us realize what the context was of the moment when they actually asked the question. And in this context, they asked the question as to who was the greatest in a moment when all those around were marveling in amazement as to Jesus' greatness. This just doesn't, this seems like they're totally lost in the moment. And why are they lost? And I believe then again, if you pull in the context, their failure was the context to Jesus' success and greatness. And then now they're seeing the marveling of the people. They're seeing, seeing the amazement of the greatness. And they're also feeling, licking their wounds of having failed. And now they just want to make sure that they're not the least among those disciples that failed. You can hear the conversations now. Well, it was Peter's idea that we just kind of say in the name of Jesus two different times, and, and then we didn't go on. We didn't pray about it. We didn't, you know, like say it in the right order, or maybe our faith was, because you could see how these arguments would happen, because if you read in the Matthew chapter 17 uh, story of this, it's the exact same story, and you read in Mark chapter 9 what was said there, you'll know that Jesus was asked by the disciples why were they not able to cast out the demon? And Jesus' response was, in Matthew, you didn't have enough faith. In fact, if you had just a little bit of faith, like that of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. In Mark, he said something that was even more perplexing, saying that, you know, you need to be, uh, in mind of this, you need to think in terms of serving. But we'll get there here in a moment. So you have this situation that they're asking the questions, but they're asking for all the wrong motives. They're trying to make sure that they're not the ultimate failure of the group, that they're actually the greater among their peers in this moment. They lose out on 
being amazed by Jesus and being enamored by that alone. They're more about envy. They're more about embarrassment. They're more about insecurity, and they're trying to prop themselves up. So they're arguing who among us is the greatest. Jesus responds, knowing what's going on. Verse 47, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you, among you all, who is the greatest. A child is the greatest. So he, I mean, who's being praised in this moment for being the greatest? Jesus, right? He's the one that everybody's enamored by. He's the one that everybody's amazed by. That's who's being marveled at. And Jesus, the greatest one, truly the greatest one there, says this. If you want to know who the greatest in the room is, this child. Now, in their culture, to appreciate this moment, you need to understand that in their culture, everybody had a rank within society. Everybody had a rank, except for children under the age of 13. Children did not have a status within society. In fact, they were considered the least in the society. They had no rights. Parents had ultimate authority. Very different in American culture. Our children dictate the schedule of our homes. That was not the case in Israel's society, in Jewish culture, or for that matter, in Middle Eastern culture. That was not the case. Children had no status. They simply had to abide by what the wishes were of the adults in the room. So to pull a child up to this spot in front of them all, when they're arguing about who's the greatest, Jesus says, this child is the greatest in the room. This child is the greatest, a person of no status. In other words, Jesus is modeling something here. Being the greatest in the room, he models the quality of exalting others standing in his presence. Not to say, look at me, who I am. He takes the least in the room and puts them up on the spot that belongs to him. After all, this child would have never, having been raised in that culture, would have never clamored for the position of being the greatest in the room. He would have never done that. That would have been totally antisocial in that day. Also, also, you would have never had the opportunity for this person to presume such an argument. That child would have never even joined in that argument. Yet Jesus pulls the child to the center of the room and says, this child is the greatest in the room. Ultimately saying that humble awareness leads to a humble heart, which then is where God esteems that individual. That child was not drawing attention to themselves. They're not even mentioned as having been in the room that there were children because they're nothings. They're not the meaningful ones here. So this child says that you must be, I mean, so Jesus says that this child is the one who is the greatest, and we need to be like such a child. In fact, in Mark chapter 9, when Jesus is having this moment with the disciples, he says this, it's not about 
who's the greatest. But if you want to be the greatest, then you want to be the one who serves. This is actually what it says. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last. If you want to be first, you must be last, and therefore the servant of all. You want to be great? Fine, go last. You want to be great? Serve everybody around you. Make sure that they get to go first and that their success is prompted and helped by you. There is greatness. I mean, isn't it normal that if there's a group of people in the room and there's a desire to be great, it's about promoting yourself. Sometimes we even promote our kids through social media. We're making them great as compared to other kids' as uh, other parents' as children, and we want to highlight their successes. Is that really helpful to them? I think we celebrate our kids, and I, and I don't have a problem with that, but we got to be careful as to what we call great. Some of the best moments that can happen in any human being's life would be considered anti-human. It would be serving, lifting up, not drawing attention to yourself, in fact, hardly even known, except by the one that benefited. Jesus was the one to not announce our good gifts with trumpets, not to do our goodwill deeds in front of others so that they can celebrate us, but rather, he said, go in private. Do these things so that the only person that sees is God himself. Jesus is very consistent with this. So the least among you is the greatest. And if you want to be great, go last and serve. That's Jesus' simple declaration about what it means to be great. But let's look at the journey then for these disciples. Did they receive this well? How did it apply to them? Well, if you go to Matthew 18, you'll see that the disciples are charged to be like that of a child. Again, Matthew 17 is the account that was similar to what we're reading in Luke 9. And so in Matthew 18, he says the same thing. It's like, be like that of a child. Welcome a child because that's the least and I, and I love on them. But in Matthew 19, days later, there is a bunch of people clamoring for the attention of Jesus. And the disciples were keeping the children away from Jesus because there were more important people that needed access to him. Wait a second. So in the previous chapter of Matthew, also in previous accounts of the other gospel, Jesus says, you must be like a child. They're the greatest. They're the, they give them audience, the least of these. Prop them up. And yet in the very next moment, opportunity, where the disciples have an opportunity to show they have learned, they keep the children away from Jesus because there are more important people, greater people that need access to Jesus. And Jesus is not having it. Let's read in Matthew 19. It'll be up on the screen. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them, but the disciples rebuked them. Same word. Jesus rebuked the demon, and the demon left. The disciples rebuked the children for wanting to be near Jesus. How far are they from learning the lesson? And Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, these children, he went on from there. The disciples are still not getting it. 
Jesus even used the analogy of a child as being the greatest, and the disciples still aren't hearing it. Let's continue on. You think that maybe as they're now walking a couple years later that they've learned their lesson. I'm going to take you to the night when Jesus is actually betrayed. He's sitting at the table that he's going to do the first communion, the cup and the bread, with his disciples. And I want you to see what happens. So it's in Luke chapter 22, verses 20 to 24. And it says this, In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. And then a dispute. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. Do you realize we're now almost two full years later and probably a multitude of examples where Jesus continued as the greatest in the room continued to elevate others and lift them up, that the disciples would have figured it out by this moment. This is for all, all considered purpose. This is their final crescendo of being with Jesus. The greatest moment that we would say, in this moment, he's giving the communion. He's speaking great things to him. He prays over them. So many things happen. And what are they doing? They're still arguing as to who is the greatest. God help us. So what do we take away from this? Because this is about looking at Jesus and how he modeled what true living is about. And, and I really believe that what Jesus is giving us here is that there's only one place where you can find true greatness. And it's Jesus himself. It's Jesus himself. So therefore, the, the pursuit of greatness in life should be about recognizing and being amazed by one. Jesus, not being amazed by other human beings, being amazed by one. He is the greatness of God on display for you and I. So therefore, us giving our time over these weeks in the book of Luke to look at his life so that we can begin to apply those values in our life is worthy of our greatest efforts. Secondly, not only should we be amazed by Jesus as being the true greatness of God here on display, but we should value the heart and attitude of Jesus, which is humility. You see, humility, if we value it, is the key attitude of your standing among others. That as I stand among others, if I'm part of a group of people, my standing among them is to elevate them, to build them up. I believe that the biblical design for leadership is rooted right there. Is that the true leader that captures the greatness and heart of God recognizes that their sole purpose is to elevate everyone else around them. Even as you look at all the different assignments and attitudes for leaders, and you can see that we're there to serve and to build up, even to the highest institution here on this earth, marriage God says to the man, your job is to build up your wife and cause a radiant face upon her by the same manner of which Jesus did the same thing for his bride, the church, where he did everything for her to raise up that church as the bride and to be radiant. 
So therefore, our way of leading, even within our homes, is crying out for the same type of greatness Jesus did, which took the greatness, set it aside for being focused on him, and set it aside to elevate others within the room that were unseen. So being amazed by Jesus, valuing humility in our standing among others. And lastly, then the action to this is, if you're amazed by Jesus, realizing he's the great one, and your humility among others is that your attitude is to raise them up, then your opportunity is to serve with passion. To give yourself to the advancement of others over yourself by serving them from whatever position you are in. So greatness is you serving others and elevating them for their advancement, not for your own. Let God do the advancement of you. Let you, God through you advance others, serving with passion. Let's pray. Jesus, I know that the opportunities for each of us to operate into pride is daily. Even every minute, we have opportunity to operate under pride. And I believe why greatness stands out and why Jesus stood out is because he truly showed the greatness and power of God, but he did so and continually deflected that for the sake of giving glory to God the Father and giving glory to the one who was unseen in the room, to the cripple, to the sinner, to the prostitute, to the child, the ones that were neglected in the room were the ones he focused on. God, help us to capture that attitude, a humble spirit and a servitude that says, I am willing to use my position of leadership for the advancement of others. And in this case, Jesus, we want you to be advanced. We want your kingdom to be advanced through our church, through our lives, through our individual oikos, our, our relational world around us, that God, you would advance and Jesus, your name be glorified through the way we live as a humble servant to those around us. If you'd like to pray with someone, we'll have somebody underneath the cross who'd be glad to pray with you to talk to the great God that we have and to come alongside somebody else that understands that we're here to serve. That's what we're here for. Having said that, I'm going to end us with the beginning of the greatest sermon preached all time, the Sermon on the Mount. And the first beatitude was this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, that's the beginning of, of the heart of the message of Jesus is having a humble heart, recognizing that the greatness is God and that it's special that God chooses with his greatness to work through you and I. That's the blessing of it all. And so God, I just pray that for each of us that instead of pride, we become known as people who are servants, that we advocate for our fellow mankind, being a blessing to those around us, as that truly will show the greatness of what God is doing here on this earth. Not by our pride, not by our successes, but by our gentleness and our humble hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who is worthy of the term great, the greatest of all time. Amen.